This message by C.J. Mahaney was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. C.J. serves as the senior pastor for Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. Please turn in your Bible to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, where our attention this morning will be devoted to the three commands that appear in verses 16 through 18. If you are not familiar with the website, the Babylon Bee, they describe themselves this way. The Babylon Bee is your trusted source for Christian news satire. The Babylon Bee is a Christian website that publishes satirical articles on politics, current events, and religion. It's a Christian version of The Onion. And I am a fan of the Bee. They are very insightful and often (laughs) laugh out loud funny. Recently, they featured a post titled, Eight Handy Bible Reading Tips. It reads... It's not always easy to crack open the Word of God. You've got more important things to do, like browse TikTok. (laughs) So, it's important to have a plan of attack to make sure you read the Bible at least a little bit every day. Luckily for you, your friends at the Babylon Bee are way more spiritual than you are, and today we've got some hot tips for reading your Bible. One. Consider getting a hip translation with cool words like yeet and sheesh. (laughs) How can you experience the eternal word of God if it's not cool and hip? Two, get an audio Bible read by William Shatner. (laughs) Three, make sure to set set aside at least seven seconds a day to read the Bible. It's important to dedicate a few short seconds to the Lord before you spend the rest of your day on social media. Four, spend most of your devotional time trying to get a good picture of your Bible next to a cup of coffee for your Instagram. Now that you've got a few seconds with the Lord, spend the entire time live tweeting your devotions and getting that perfect Instagram shot. Five, Look for creative ways to rip verses out of context and make them all about you. Six, when your kids try to interrupt you, shout, not today, Satan. (laughs) Seven, underline the entire book so no verses feel left out. The more underlining, the more spiritual you are. And then finally, number eight. Whenever you read a really convicting verse, make sure to apply it to everyone else (laughs) instead of yourself. This is an important one. If you read a verse that convicts you of sin in your life, just think of how much Becky from Bible study needs to change her life (laughs) instead of you. It's better this way. Though our passage is brief this morning, it's really convicting stuff. Rejoice always. Pray without 
ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm convicted each and every time I read this passage or whenever someone quotes this passage. And my temptation can be to apply these commands to everyone in my relational world rather than apply them to myself as God intends. If you are like me, I invite you to join me in resisting that temptation this morning. Instead, let's discover afresh how God has graciously given us these convicting commands for our good and ultimately His glory. And let's consider how we can immediately apply them to our lives rather than the person sitting next to us this morning. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5, Paul transitions from describing a life characterized by hope, anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, and concludes the letter addressing daily life and the congregational life of the Thessalonians as the new community God has created through the proclamation of the gospel. And what is particularly striking about this concluding section is that we are met with a, a barrage, a barrage of brief, simple commands, some 19 in all. Paul goes all gas and no brakes in this final section, communicating one specific, potent command after another. This is how the gospel that creates the church is to shape the daily life of the Christian and the church. And this is Paul at his pastoral and practical best. These commands are all informed by his love for the church and his knowledge of the church, and their purpose is to strengthen the church. In our text, verses 16 through 18, Paul addresses their relationship with God himself in three distinct commands. Each of these commands and all of these commands in this closing section are informed and inspired by the gospel that is central in this letter, which Paul has been declaring and celebrating from the first chapter of this letter, where he reminds the Thessalonians of Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come in chapter 1, verse 10. God's love in rescuing them through Christ and Him crucified precedes and informs these commands in chapter 5. The obedience of the Christian to God's commands is in response to the relationship God has initiated and created by His grace, not in order to earn it. So these commands and our obedience to these commands don't create our relationship 
with God. Instead, they regulate this relationship, and obedience to these commands displays the transforming effect of the gospel in our lives. I like, I really like how Brian Chappell describes, describes this in his book titled Unlimited Grace, where he writes, through the blessings of grace, walking with Jesus is no longer a forced march of merit, but a willing response of love, gratitude, and thanksgiving. So obeying these commands is not a forced march of merit, for we are forgiven and justified and accepted by God only because of the merits of our Savior. We are saved by good works. His good works, not our good works. His obedience, His substitutionary sacrifice on the cross in our place for our sins, satisfying the righteous wrath of God and securing for us our salvation. So, obeying these commands is not a forced march of merit, all because of the merits of our Savior on our behalf. So, obeying these commands is what loving devotion to the one who rescued us from the wrath we deserve looks like. These commands are, in fact, kind invitations from God. Kind invitations from God to grow in our devotion to God, deepen our affection for God, and ultimately find satisfaction in God and God alone. And listen, these good and wise commands from God himself are meant to lift burdens from our heart, not add burdens to our lives. So, whatever burdens you brought with you this morning, and everyone brought them, everyone got out of their car and headed toward this wonderful facility to gather with this wonderful church, bearing burdens. You walk through the doors in the back, bearing burdens. Whatever burdens you arrived with, whatever burdens are weighing you down, whatever burdens are distracting you, oh my, these commands, they're a gift from God Himself to lift those burdens from your heart. So, let, let's, let's welcome the sweet gift of conviction where appropriate this morning. And let's resist and dismiss even the slightest whisper of condemnation from the evil one about our failure in relation to these commands. Actually, I don't think it's these commands to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. I don't think it's the commands themselves that we find daunting or discouraging. I, I think what we find daunting and potentially discouraging is the comprehensive nature of these commands. Rejoice always. Pray 
Okay? Without ceasing. Give thanks, good, in all circumstances. I really think it's the comprehensive nature of these commands. Because do they not appear at first glance to be just a bit unrealistic? Just a tad impossible to fulfill? Well, I hope what we learn this morning is that they are not. I hope we learn this morning. We tend to be affected or adversely affected by these commands because we've actually misunderstood the comprehensive nature of these commands and we've actually misunderstood how to apply these commands to our lives. Actually, the comprehensive nature of these commands is good news. It's good news. It's meant to be good news because it means there is no moment or circumstance that these commands don't apply to our lives with life-changing potency and potential. So, with eager anticipation of the difference obedience to these commands by the empowering grace of God can make in our life, let's consider these commands. First, rejoice always, verse 16. This is a remarkable command. (laughs) It's a remarkable command, particularly since the original readers are suffering. They are enduring persecution for the sake of the gospel, and they have been enduring this persecution from the moment of their conversion. So their conversion took place in the midst of hostility and opposition to the gospel, and it appears the Thessalonians didn't expect this persecution to continue, but it did, and it was unsettling to their souls. And Paul addresses this and encourages them in chapter 3 with these words, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So this command in 5.16 reminds them of their duty, their responsibility to rejoice always even as their experience of affliction and persecution continues. They are to rejoice always even in the midst of persecution, affliction, and suffering and not just when circumstances are favorable and enjoyable. One of the distinctives of their conversion was their extraordinary experience of joy in the midst of suffering. And Paul reminds them of that in the opening chapter when he writes, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul does not want their prolonged experience of persecution to rob them of the joy that characterized them at their conversion. They needed this reminder in chapter 5, verse 16. And if they needed this reminder, so do we. And they have many reasons to rejoice always. Many reasons. In his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, Charles Wanamaker explains why they have many reasons when he writes, although Paul does not spell out the source or basis of Christian joy in 5.16, 
the instructions to rejoice always derives its meaning from the earlier passages in the letter. I love this second sentence. To rejoice always is to see the hand of God in whatever is happening and to remain certain of God's future salvation. Without such conviction, joy would not be possible in the face of affliction, suffering, and death. So they are commanded to rejoice always because why? Because why? Because the hand of God is always at work in their lives. And Paul has already modeled for them how to perceive the hand of God at work and rejoice in the hand of God at work from actually the outset of this letter. In the opening verses, he reflects back on his experience with them and he identifies the hand of God at work in them when he writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it was the hand of God at work in the Thessalonian Christians that informed Paul's outburst of rejoicing at the outset of this letter. If you are a Christian, God commands you to rejoice always because His gracious hand is always at work in your life, providing you with something to rejoice in, beginning with your salvation. And since the gracious hand of God is always at work in the life of the Christian, there is always something to rejoice in if we are paying attention and know what to look for, even in the midst of suffering. I really think the Puritan Thomas Watson has accurately described our, our all too often temptation and tendency and actually provided us with the remedy as well. This is drawn from his excellent book, The Art of Divine Contentment, where he wrote, our tendency is to pour over losses rather than ponder our mercies. A gracious heart spies out mercy in every condition. Oh, mama. Listen, this is potent stuff. It'll change your life. This command to rejoice always, what does it teach us to do? It teaches us to spy out mercy in every condition. I'm not trying to in any way minimize the pain of suffering. I'm not trying to minimize your condition of suffering. But I am trying to draw your attention to this command which is given for your good so that rather than simply pouring over your losses, leaving you vulnerable to all manner of resentment and bitterness. Scripture, for our good and God's glory, instead exhorts us, ponder your mercies and spy out mercy in every condition because His hand 
hand of mercy is present in every condition if you know what you're looking for. So, where do you see the merciful hand of God at work in your life, even if you are suffering, particularly if you are suffering like the Thessalonians were suffering? The gracious hand of God is at work. Do you notice it? Are you looking for it? Or are you pouring over and preoccupied with your losses? Listen, if you look for his hand, you'll see it because it is definitely there. (laughs) So let me recommend, let me recommend that you devote some unhurried time beginning today and throughout this week to to carefully observe the sweet providence of God in your life, even in the midst of the, and particularly in the midst of the bitter providence of God in your life, and recognize the many ways the hand of God is graciously at work in your life. Listen, if you do that, it will not be difficult to rejoice always, because God is always graciously and generously at work in our lives, providing us with plenty to rejoice in. And when you do rejoice, it will deepen your gratefulness to God, your affection for God, and it will alter the disposition of your heart. Rejoice always because God is always graciously and generously at work. Second, pray without ceasing. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now listen, this command is meant to encourage us to pray. It's not a discouraging reminder that we don't pray enough. (laughs) And this command is an easy one to misunderstand for it, it just can appear at first glance, just impossible to obey. I mean, this is, this is an impractical command in light of other responsibilities and tasks. Most days, I am committed to oh, the exciting venture of walking as a form of exercise. It has come to this in my life. I used to drive by people who walk, and I'm sorry to say, mock them for walking. And now I am numbered among them walking along seeking to accumulate my 10,000 step. If the health experts recommended walk without ceasing, obviously this wouldn't be realistic. (laughs) This wouldn't be possible. My friends, this isn't what Paul is commanding here in relation to prayer. This isn't a command for us. Neglect work. Drop out of school. Devote yourself exclusively to the practice of prayer in private. Now listen, there there is certainly a place, certainly a place for set times of prayer, the practice of unhurried and undistracted prayer. For me, this practice normally takes place in the morning and actually then prepares me for the application of this particular command throughout the day. But Paul is not commanding the Thessalonians or us by implication to be devoted to the uninterrupted practice of prayer, for this would contradict what he has previously taught in this very letter about the importance of work in chapter 4. And 
other responsibilities that make up daily life. So this, this does not mean that we are to devote every waking moment to the practice of prayer because that would mean neglecting other God-given responsibilities we are commanded to attend to each and every day. Greg Beal, in his commentary, helpfully describes what this command is meant to produce when he writes, during daily activities, we must focus on the task at hand, but we should never lose sight of God in our spiritual peripheral vision. So actually, this command is a call to prayer that isn't restricted to a certain time or location. So that, why? So that we never lose sight of God in our spiritual peripheral vision throughout the day. So our practice of prayer is not limited to certain prescribed hours. Our practice of prayer actually should permeate our daily lives. So we're to view this command as a very kind invitation from God to enjoy communion with God. Not simply during a fixed time in the morning, but throughout a given day. So I need this. I need this command as my companion, as I make my way into another busy day. This command is an invitation to commune with God any time and all the time without neglecting other God-given responsibilities. And in an article titled, Don't Ever Stop Praying, The Refreshing Privilege of Unceasing Prayer, author Scott Hubbard makes this point very effectively when he writes of this command, if prayer is merely an activity to do, then pray without ceasing will sound oppressive. But if prayer is communion with God, communion with this Father, Son, and Spirit, then we will hear the command differently. Enjoy God without ceasing. Depend on God without ceasing. Gain strength from God without ceasing. And find that He is ever near, always faithful. Oh, my friends, I, I do pray. I, I pray that we would all hear this command differently if we've previously heard it inaccurately. That This command is about communion with God throughout each day that isn't confined to a certain time or location. It doesn't require that I be on my knees or bow my head. And for applying this command to my life, I, I have found the wise counsel and practice of Charles Spurgeon so helpful in obeying this command. Mr. Spurgeon wrote of his practice in applying this command, I always feel it well to put a few words of prayer between everything I do. And if you, you know anything about the life of Charles Spurgeon, I can assure you, regardless of how busy you are tomorrow, Spurgeon was busier unless, <laughs> unless you are a mother of small children. <laughs> and yet th throughout his very full days, Spurgeon did pray without ceasing. And, and his example and practice is, is worthy of imitation. And note, say, he said, just a few words. A few words are all that is necessary. Not many words. A few words. Martin Luther argued that prayer ought not to be long and elaborate so much as frequent and fervent. 
Just read the Lord's Prayer, the prayer the Lord Jesus gave us to pray. What an economy of words. It is not long, but it covers it all. So let's draw near to God without ceasing. Let's enjoy God without ceasing. Let's depend upon God without ceasing. Let's gain strength from God each and every moment without ceasing. And let's experience the nearness of God without ceasing by praying without ceasing. Third, give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 18. This is, this is just yet another stunning command, particularly in light of their harsh circumstance. Now, this command doesn't mean that we're to concentrate on giving thanks every moment of the day. It's, no, this, this command means that in the midst of every circumstance, whether good or adverse, we are to give thanks to God. And let me tell you, this, this simple command, oh, this is just a simple command. But when it's obeyed, it will have a heart-altering effect on our lives. When, when, listen, when you obey this command, whenever you obey this command, it, it will have an immediate discernible effect on your heart and your soul in relation to God and others can't help but notice and those who are non-Christians be drawn to Christ as a result. Listen, listen, test drive it for yourself. Test drive this and these other two commands and see if this isn't so. Gratefulness, giving thanks to God for His graciousness and generosity is to be a distinctive in the life of the Christian. Gratefulness is to be an observable effect of the gospel in the heart and life of the Christian. And by the way, you have so many compelling examples of this in your midst. And for me, last Sunday after the meeting, to have an extended period of unhurried time talking to John and Janet Chap was, well, when I got home, it was the first thing I told my wife. I said to listen to them communicate in the midst of their grief and pain their love for God, their trust in God. I said I was on holy ground feeling the pleasure of God. So countless examples. Listen, I look up from these commands and I see faces I recognize and you are living illustrations. And for that I thank God. The Thessalonian Christians, and each of us by implication, we, we are to give thanks in every circumstance. In all circumstances. So there is, well, that would seem to mean, yes it does, that there are no circumstances that exist where this doesn't apply for our good and God's glory. And so there is no misunderstanding. It does not say for all circumstances, for we aren't thanking God for the effects of sin we experience in this fallen world. However, a Christian is to give thanks to God in all 
circumstances because God is at work in all circumstances, sanctifying us and glorifying himself. Like what Edmund Hybert writes in his commentary about this command, the Christian, he writes, should meet the adverse circumstances of life, not with a stoic resignation, but with a spirit of unfailing gratitude. So question, how do you meet the adverse circumstances of life that are inevitable each day in some form? Do you meet them with a spirit of unfailing gratitude or ceaseless complaining? There's always something to give thanks for. There's actually plenty to give thanks for in all circumstances. Why? Well, because God is graciously at work and generously at work in all circumstances. And in his book on suffering titled Suffering, Gospel Hope, When Life Doesn't Make Sense, Paul Tripp reminds us of this when he writes, I have learned that no matter how hard a day is, there are more beautiful things in that day that I should be thankful for. And there are reasons to celebrate the love of the one who gives them to me. Oh my. Listen, that's why this command is given to us in verse 18. It's given so that we might learn no matter how hard a day is, there are beautiful things in that day that I should be thankful for. There are reasons to celebrate the love of the one who gave them to you. No matter how hard a day is. And when I was originally preparing this message, I was just skimming over headlines one morning, and I came across a headline that actually, I think, gives new meaning to having a bad day. The headline reads, Gettysburg Battlefield Visitor Trapped in Porta Potty by Downed Tree. So a visitor to the battlefield Gettysburg made his way to a porta potty and through obviously circumstances this individual didn't anticipate, a tree fell on the porta potty and this man was unable to free himself. Listen my friends, you think you're having a bad day. I read that, I said no, this guy is having a bad day. This guy had a bad day. and I. Certainly hope this is never your experience. But listen, it's a fallen world. And some form of a porta potty experience, a downed tree falling on you in a porta potty awaits you at some point in your life. And perhaps that describes you this morning. Perhaps you sit there this morning and you are feeling, that's me, man. That's me. I'm trapped by a down tree. And I feel like I'm trapped in a porta potty. I'll tell you something. This command is meant to liberate you, even in the midst of the most difficult day. God gives it to us with that intention to liberate us 
It, it is a gift from God. It is an expression of God's kindness because the command directs our attention away from trials to the many different ways God is graciously at work. And one of the officials who arrived on the scene to help extricate this man, he, he identified, he used the word lucky, that's the world's use of what really is grace, uh, to describe this man being saved and being extracted. Well, this command directs our attention, even in the most difficult circumstances, no matter how hard a day is to realize, no, no, God is at work here. God is graciously at work here, even if I cannot perceive it, even if this is painful. There is some good purpose. He is at work for my good and ultimately for His glory. And this command is an invitation to, to consider and to give thanks for His undeserved kindness that is present and pronounced, my friends, in our lives each and every day. So I want to exhort each one of us, according to the, the very famous and familiar hymn, count your blessings. Name them one by one. And you, you will be surprised at what the Lord has done. Listen, if you don't count them, if you don't name them one by one, you will not perceive them. You will overlook them and you won't be surprised by what the Lord has done. Listen, too often I don't see because I'm not counting. And at different times in our lives, Carolyn has served me and served me well. She has created lists when we've been walking through particularly difficult seasons. She has intentionally created lists writing down one by one. Oh, I can remember one period of time where she initially presented that list in order to serve me and care for me. There was part of me that didn't want to look at the list. I wanted to pour over my losses. My dear wife was obeying the command of God and seeking to serve me. And she not only presented me a list that particular day, she kept adding to the list. The list kept growing. It's Pages and pages and pages. And as I learned to humble myself and study that list, oh my, the hand, the gracious hand of the Lord is indeed at work. And it serves my soul to name them one by one and to count them because it always left me surprised and grateful at what the Lord was doing and what I definitely didn't deserve. If you don't count, you remain blind, and then you're vulnerable to all manner of complaining. So this command is meant to provoke us to count, to make sure we don't forget to count. And then notice, Paul makes it clear that rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances, it's not simply a recommendation. Notice, it's the will of God. So he grounds these commands in the authority of God himself. This is the will of God. Now, having served in pastoral ministry for more than 40 years, I have been approached by countless individuals who are sincerely desiring to discern the will of God for their lives. And normally, they're asking for counsel and wisdom about a decision related to, let's say, marriage or vocation or some major decision where they have options and they need clarity and they're in the midst of uncertainty. I love this 
We, we aren't left to wonder, speculate about what the will of God is for our life in this passage. This stuff, listen, it's this stuff that stands at the center of God's plan for us. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. That's the center of God's will for the Christian, not the periphery. So good, good news this morning. Good news. You, you don't have to wonder or speculate about what is God's will for your life because the center of his will is just wonderfully plain. It's not complicated. It's not elusive. It's not mysterious. The will of God for our lives begins right here with these commands. And by the way, you can't expect to discern the will of God related to marriage or vocation or schooling. You can't expect to discern the will of God for those areas if you are neglecting these. So this is instructive and it's wisdom from above and it's liberating for our souls. This is how to daily orient our lives to the good and the wise will of God. And take special note that this is God's will for them in Christ Jesus. Oh, those three words are so sweet. Because obeying these commands is only possible because of Christ Jesus. Obeying these commands is only possible because of what he has done for us and what he has done within us, applied to us by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So obeying these commands is only possible if one is in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's description for the work of the Spirit, joining believers to Christ so that all of his saving benefits become ours. So those once separated from him are joined to him through the new birth, and what Christ has done for us is applied to us through our union with him. Only those who are in union with him are empowered by him to gladly obey these commands. Oh my, don't, don't, you, love, don't you love how the Lord rolls? Don't you, do? don't you just love it? God doesn't just issue commands without empowering us to obey the command, and it's all because of Christ, and ultimately it's all for the glory of Christ. One more thing before we're done. Don't want you to overlook. These would be worth underlining these last two words. For you. Oh, don't, don't overlook that concluding phrase. Because actually, that concluding phrase personalizes all these commands. And, and in effect, that phrase, for you, addresses each of us by name. So when we read for you, God himself is making eye contact with each of us this morning. It's for you, ma'am. For you, sir. For you, pal. It's for you. For you. For you. God is making eye contact and saying, these commands are gifts from me. And they are for you. They are, they are from the gracious God who has rescued sinners like us from his wrath by not sparing his own son, 
These commands are from Him for you. They're for your good to lift burdens from your heart as you go from this place today and deepen your knowledge of Him, your friendship with Him, your affection for Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, <laughs> so few words, so much wisdom and grace. How kind of you to inspire Paul to write these commands to the Thessalonian church. How kind of you to preserve these commands. We were in your peripheral vision when you inspired Paul to write this letter and these commands. They were written and preserved with us in view today. How kind of you. And so, Lord, I pray that everyone present would view them as you intend as kind commands, kind invitations to lift burdens from our hearts and deepen our knowledge of you and our relationship with you, all because of the gracious sacrifice of your Son rescuing us from wrath, all because of the cross and all for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.